Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is Akos Niedges. Uh, he's from Hungary. That's why his name sounds like that, and I hope I did a good job pronouncing it. He's a research fellow in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. And the topic we're going to talk about today is, you know, it comes from a news article. Scientists have engineered super bacteria that appear to be alien to all life on Earth. So we're going to get into that. But uh, welcome, Akos. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Richard, for the introduction and also for the invitation. And you did a perfect job in pronouncing my name. Oh, good. Well, tell me a bit about your background, and then we'll talk about the work that you're doing currently. Yeah, I'm very happy to. So I'm Hungarian. I born in Hungary and also started my research career there during my elementary school years. I became really excited about microbiology because maybe because I got a book which had many microphotographs and I got a microscope and I started exploring the world around me and which slowly evolved into excitement about microbiology. I started microbiology research in actual lab setting during my high school, eventually found an article about synthetic genomics. And since 2009, 2008, 2009, I'm only in synthetic genomics and, and really excited about our ability to generate engineer organisms, design biological systems. So what is uh, synthetic genomics? So synthetic genomics is a very nascent new field in synthetic biology. So synthetic biology is about engineering biological systems with engineering principles. And synthetic genomics is a subfield of this which aims to generate organisms with custom design, user-defined properties, and human-generated genetic material. So... DNA synthesis, sequencing, our understanding of biology reached the level where we can finally computationally and physically in under laboratory settings generate entire genomes of organisms ranging from bacteria to soon eukaryotic cells and generate organisms that do what we, we ask them to do. It, yeah, but uh, are you using the normal nucleotides and base pairs that come in, you know, in that creature's uh, body? Or what are you using? Are you make manufacturing your own that are analogous but a different structure? Both of these are possible. Most projects, including the projects I'm currently doing, rely on natural genetic information. So we take an organism that we know it works very close to what we would like to achieve. And based on rational, rational design rules, we redesign it to do something differently. But people are already working on new building blocks. We are working on new genetic codes, which then can... Do these organisms still use the natural DNA, RNA building blocks, and can do functions or, for example, synthesize proteins that are orthogonal or different from natural proteins? So you're not making new types of nucleotides, you know, like guanine, adesine, cytosine, etc. But you're putting them together in new ways. Are you adding exactly, exactly sequences what? that yeah. make proteins to an existing genome? Like, what are you doing? 
Yes. So at this stage, we are primarily focusing on modifying what's existing, but it's already, people already demonstrated that you can plug in new building blocks, new nucleotides, which then practically result in a semi-synthetic organism. Are you appending the existing genome with more, you know, let's say protein making sequences or like, like how do you do this? Let's say you have a, I don't know, a certain bacteria, you know, E. coli, whatever strain. How would you modify it, for instance? Like, what are some of the lab work that you've done? So one option is that we just plug in new genes to to generate a new function. But synthetic genomics is mainly about the scale. So we can do it with conventional molecular genetics or conventional genetic genome engineering techniques and replace a few genes. But this is not really synthetic genomics. Synthetic genomics is more about generating hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of changes and to reach this scale, you instantly need to synthesize the entire genome of an organism. So it has a synthesis step, which usually starts by chemically synthesizing short pieces of DNA. And then from these short pieces of DNA, you assemble this entire modified genome, genetic material for an organism, and then you boot it up in a living cell. So are you trying to make are you trying to make an organism that lives and does things, or is there exactly. a lower exactly. I mean like if you have a series of, you know, base pairs that can create a protein or whatever it is, are you able to operate, you know, a subset of the genome just as machinery to make certain proteins? Or do you need it in the context of a whole genome and a whole organism in order to do that kind of thing? You can demo most of these changes in a very small scale, small scale, few genes, few dozens of genes. But for certain types of changes, and one change we actually talked about in this paper that we published last year is to change the genetic code. And the genetic code is one of these functions that you can't really engineer on on a small scale. It's an all or nothing kind of change. You can't change it until you change the entire organism. So for these types of modifications, you really need to generate an entire genome first, which matches your desired genetic code, and then you can demo these changes. So what kind of organisms seem to be most amenable that can act like a chassis you know, on a car to, to append different sequences to or, or modify, like which seems to be the most permissive one that you found? So I think it's a challenging question because I think what's most, the easiest organisms are usually the organisms which in one hand have a small genome, so it's easy relatively to synthesize. And we still need a lot of genetic information based on which we can generate these new designs. And almost uniquely, the easiest target is always the common gut bacterium E. coli, Escherichia coli, which people might have heard about it as a human pathogen. It can cause certain variants can cause diseases. Genetics and bacteriogenetic research relies on a non-pathogenic and absolutely, absolutely harmless variant isolated many, many decades ago. And most of our knowledge about bacteriogenetics is coming from this strain. And we use this, a streamlined, even easier version of it for most of our studies. Do you use CRISPR-Cas9 about certain genetic elements and add them in? Like, what are some of the tools that you use to accomplish these, uh, you know, these insertions or changes? Yeah, so CRISPR is an extremely powerful technique. It's coming from bacteria. And one of the the earliest applications is to actually then go back to bacterial genomes and modify bacterial genes with CRISPR. CRISPR CRISPR-Cas9 system is very powerful. We can use it to replace large genomic regions 
practically almost do anything with our genome. But in bacterial cells, it works. CRISPR-Cas works a bit differently, or it's a it's an immu- immune process, so it cuts DNA and kills the thing it cuts. So as a consequence, we usually use use it with other viral proteins, and these viral proteins help us edit the DNA, while we use CRISPR to eliminate certain variants of DNA. So yeah, CRISPR-Cas is one of the main tools, and we use also viral recombinase systems, viral DNA editing systems to plug in or replace genomic regions. So what are some regions that are amenable to change, and which ones... If you make a change, it just kills everything. Nothing works. Yeah. So the hardest regions to engineer and maybe region, regions that are essential for life in a given organism. So I think, yeah, these these pieces of DNA are hard to edit. But do you know what those areas are? Like, how do you know yeah, on a given organism? Yeah. Yeah. We know. We From all the genetic studies people did with, with bacterial cells, mainly E. coli, we know these regions. And also our ability to design these or ability to modify these rationally through computational predictions are pretty good. So we can make viable variants without facing problems. Okay. So what, what's an example of a modification you've done? What was inserted or removed and you know what happened? One of the main, one cool application that we, we did in this paper last year is that we we wanted to achieve, we wanted to generate a fully virus-resistant cell that resists all natural viruses. And potentially because viruses are natural predators of bacteria, bacteriophages are predating bacterial cells in nature, we didn't want to generate a virus-resistant cell without any kind of safeguard. So we implemented a version of some of its organ- this organism's gen- essential genes that require non-natural amino acids. So this non-natural amino acid doesn't exist anywhere in nature. It's a very hydrophobic, bulky amino acid. But our lab earlier developed a system with which we can addict essential genes of an organism to use this non-natural amino acid for protein folding. So as a consequence, if you replace these essential genes with this modified variant and you you have this organism, this organism only survives until you give this non-natural amino acid to the culture media. And as soon as you withdraw it, the, the cells will just lie and die very quickly. So we can use this system to biocontain this biocontain this bug. It's kind of like, if you remember uh, in Jurassic Park, the lysine auxotrophy. And we replaced one of the essential genes of E. coli with this non-standard amino acid addicted variant. And it worked perfectly as soon as we withdrew this non-standard amino acid that doesn't exist anywhere in nature, the cells just die. So we could generate a virus-resistant cell that we could addict to a man-made substance. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. 
was the organism able to live from there or just live for a period of time demonstrating proof of concept? Like how long lives of these, you know, modified creatures? If you provide the right environment, the right chemicals, then they divide exponentially. So they can cultivate and maintain them for a very long time, for forever, and you can freeze them at very low temperatures. But if you withdraw these or you accidentally spill it, let's say, on the ground, they die very quickly. And under very quickly, I mean minutes to hours. What does the modified generation look like versus subsequent ones? I don't know how they label them, like F1 or G1, G2, G3. You know, as they keep dividing, what happens? Like, does the change stay preserved? Does it go away? Does it depend on what you're feeding it? I mean, what happens? These are very stable modifications because the mutation rate of these strains is relatively low. It's a natural mutation rate. And every change that we do requires many, many simultaneous mutations to change because these genetic changes are usually locked, locked themselves both genetically and, yeah, log themselves because any any variant, any intermediate variant is lethal for the cell. So they can't revert back to their natural form. Do they interact with unmodified bacteria that are the same as them? I mean, they could exchange plasmids, I guess, and fix themselves, right? Yes, and we, we came up with a treat or strategy against this type of horizontal gene transfer tool. Is the other change we implemented is that we modified the genetic code of this strain in a way that we uh, reprogrammed two serine codons, two, two codons, two genetic codons that would, for serine in natural organisms, to encode leucine. So as a consequence, any genetic information that enters this cell, let it be a virus, a bacteriophage, or a plasmid, or another genome from a conjugated mobile genetic element, will be automatically mistranslated because this DNA that comes in is still natural DNA, and these serine codons should mean serine, but in this organism they mean another amino acid, which is very different chemically, and destroys the proteins that the cell would produce from these mobile genetic elements. So that's that's why they are virus resistant, and that's why they can't exchange genetic information with other existing organisms. Has anyone looked at the phage profile, the bacteriophage profile in a sample? Then you do this modification, and you see how the bacteriophage profile changes. Because I would guess phages that would infect this bacteria before maybe now can't. Maybe new ones are select are selected for. Yeah, we did a very deep characterization with sequencing techniques and both microbiology and sequencing techniques. And what we saw is that all viruses that can or could attach and potentially infect this cell die out. And this happens because they inject their genetic material into this cell, but this genetic material doesn't do anything. So the virus just dies because they hydrate themselves out from the environment. So it's like a trap. No, it's not going to have no phages, though. I would think the phages would adapt you know, over X number of generations, and you'd see different phages that arise. But we tried this. It's like resistant to phages forever. We tried this, and I'm pretty confident that this would be resistant for a very, very long time. Like, under very, very long time, I mean thousands and thousands, maybe even millions of generations, because even the smallest virus that exists and human sequencing campaigns characterize requires roughly 15 simultaneous changes, 15 changes at the same time to overcome this barrier, which means that it's extremely rare with natural evolutionary processes. And we tested and we still couldn't find anything that can replicate on on these modified cells, just because their evolution is so distant from natural natural organisms that the viruses can't jump this evolutionary barrier. 
you don't see any phage interaction with these these modified bacteria. We don't see any phaging interaction where the phage would propagate or replicate as a living phage. Whereas they are not living. They have a form that replicates, but none of these replication events result in phage, phage particles that can infect other cells. So the phage practically doesn't work in these organisms. Okay. So what happens to a population as it produces more and more generations? How does it look versus, let's say, an unmodified E. coli population. What do you notice that's different? I think the main difference is these projects highlight our ability. It shows that we can generate largely different phenotypes or largely different variants of an organism, but these organisms or these variants are still sick. So we still have a long road until we can design and generate very well-functioning biological systems because most of these cells all of these cells that we generated display a lower fitness compared to a Y-type E. coli strain. They have a lower survival rate. They have a lower fitness, which indicates that the cells are not optimal or not working optimally with their modified genetic code. I think that's the main. How many, how many generations do you, I mean, is there degradation over generations? And how many generations do you need to successfully clean up a toxic spill or do something with modified bacteria. So you mean, for example, if we accidentally spill this organism, how many generations it takes to die out or... Uh... No, no. I mean, let's let's say you're modifying E. coli to uh, produce a certain protein for industry. Mm-hmm. How long will that work until the population just falls apart or can it do it in perpetuity once you can, as long as you keep culture? There are ways, there are ways to edit for example, bacterial cells to produce certain proteins or metabolites. But natural evolution is usually, it's always a double-edged sword. So you produce something, but the production of a metabolite or a protein is harmful for the cell. And the cell, as soon as it can mutate or destroy your expression construct, the variants that destroyed your expression construct will overtake these cells in a population where the cells are constantly dividing. We can prolong the functionality of these genetic circuits, but usually they, they mutate and with hundreds to thousands of generations, they, the cells get rid of it. With rational genome design and based on genetic code engineering, we potentially can lock cells into their modified state. And our lab demonstrated that you can avoid these cells for a very long time and still they remain the same. So what are, um, I'm sure there's like millions of different use cases, but what are some of the ones you're working on? Is this for industry or what is it for? So I'm really excited about drug discovery and development. So I think one large application for these cells or these synthetic genetic codes will be protein design with an expanded chemical alphabet. So we will be able to manufacture therapeutically potentially better protein variants. We can also change biomaterial production. We can generate proteins that have better properties than naturally existing proteins for biomaterial generation. These cells are also isolated from the environment and from other organisms. So we can use them for bioremediation and as living therapeutics because we can prevent horizontal gene transfer and potentially prevent also viral predation. So these cells can survive longer and once we want to kill them, we just withdraw this non-natural amino acid, and as a consequence, they just die. And there's no genetic exchange with natural organisms, so we don't need to worry about horizontal gene transfer, which is a general worry about genetically modified organisms. Well, what if you allowed it? And what if the modified ones, is it ever the case the modified ones would modify the unmodified ones? 
or the pressure goes the other way where the, the normal ones now unmodify the modified ones? I would say, I think the latter, latter situation is more likely. Yeah, I think the latter is more likely. I think these cells would just simply lose their modifications very quickly because the modifications confer a fitness defect and they would either die very quickly, die out and be outcompeted by natural organisms or horizontal gene transfer would replace that genetic information if we wouldn't prevent this type of horizontal gene transfer. Are these epigenetically robust, meaning can they have epigenetic responses to different environments of stimuli? And, you know, again, are they as modifiable or, or as robust as unmodified E. coli? Luckily, prokaryotic cells, I'm not the expert to talk about epigenetics in, in prokaryotic cells. It's not really a major player in gene regulation, but in eukaryotic cells, and if these technologies become translated to human human or mammalian cells, then yes, most likely eukaryotic epigenetic changes will be a, potentially can modify these. But in bacterial cells, it's not, we haven't seen cases for, we haven't seen this in our experiments. No, it's more like horizontal gene transfer instead of yes. self-regulation. Yeah. And spontaneous mutations. Makes sense. Okay. So what are some of the applications? Again, drug discovery, making certain proteins, is that what you're focused on? Is there like a specific application that you're trying to, you know, use a uh, bacteria to solve? These are the main applications I'm the most excited about at the moment. I think the main one I'm really excited about is just simply understand biology and understand how to engineer these cells in a bigger scale to achieve even more radical changes, troubleshoot some of the fitness problems that we see. So to be able to do it better, faster, cheaper next time. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, what do you see as the future of your work in the next few years, any big breakthroughs, or is it just you have to sift through the right, you know, the right bacteria, the right modification, and and then scale it up for production? Like, is this a, um, you know, how much like blue sky research is is here versus just methodically plodding along to figure out, you know, which combo of things will work the best for the application you want? So I think the field went really far or, or achieved many things, and we are close to the first real-world practical applications. Companies are already working on developing novel drugs, biology, using genetically modified and genetic code engineered or, or organisms with engineered genetic codes. So companies are already working on using organisms with engineered genetic codes to manufacture biology drugs, proteins, and I'm hoping that the first drugs will reach human application and clinical trials in the next couple of years. And potentially we see the first approved drugs on this front. And the other other area I'm really excited about, and we will see results in the next couple of years, is the translation of this technology to eukaryotic cells. So there's a project already ongoing globally, which aims the construction of a fully synthetic yeast genome, Baker's yeast, which will along some of the applications that we discussed today. And a paper came out just a few days ago demonstrating that you can do something very similar in moss, in plant, with plant genomes too. So I think it's a very exciting time to be in synthetic genomics. The DNA synthesis costs are plummeting. So I think this is going to be a major player in the next few decades. Okay. Well, that question, uh, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, people are very, are very welcome to contact me. So I'm very happy to talk to anyone who is interested. Uh, I think, yeah, it should be an email or, 
or online social media and trying to promote this type of research through social media. Okay, Akonshul, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation. And that was great chatting. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.